My name's Simon. I'm one of the pastors here, if we haven't met. Oh, don't leave without saying hi. I'd love to see you in the back by the end of the service, get to know your story and how you got to, to be here this morning. So we are continuing in our Advent series, and I was thinking through this week, I was thinking about love, I was thinking about the passage that we we're in, and I kept thinking about July 2nd, a summer night in 1505. Walking home from his parents' home in Germany, a 20-year-old Martin was trying to figure out what to do with his life. He had become uh, what his dad would want him to become, to become a lawyer, so he was going to school to become a lawyer, and as he was doing that, he did not feel fulfilled, he did not feel content, he was frustrated, feeling like he wasn't using the purpose that God had given him, and so he started to pray for months and months and months, and on that night, what he didn't realize is he was stumbling in to an epic of great proportion lightning storm where God was going to get his attention, and as the lightning was striking all around him, he tried to find the only place he could for shelter, curled up by the trunk of a tree, hoping not to get struck and be the highest point out there. He cried out to God and said, God, if you spare my life, I will serve you for the rest of my life. I'll even become a monk. And the Lord delivered him from that moment. And as he was delivered from that, we see that Martin Luther, that was the beginning of the Great Reformation. The reason why we have our Bible in the common man's language, the reason that we have returned to his solid biblical doctrine and calling out things that are false and not from God. And so what we see is that as Martin Luther was petrified with fear when God first engaged him, he became the preacher of the might of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of power before. I don't know if you've ever seen the might of God in that way before, but I think we get these glimpses of it, don't we? God will use nature at times to show his power and kind of do these little humble flexes, if you will. Whether that's a tornado or a hurricane. We live in California, so we feel earthquakes out here. Maybe the wildfires that have gone on, tsunamis. Go to a beach when the swell is huge and watch it just pummel the ground and go, there is power there, there is might there, and God is showing us that. When we speak of God's great might, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about his power, and we're talking about his authority. See, we see over and over again God showing his power, his might in the Bible. We get it from the very beginning, the first page, the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1. We see that in the creation uh, account, don't we? We see that he creates light. He creates time in that moment that the waters and the land are separated he makes the plants. He makes, he makes the plants in such a way that they don't just live and die, but they live, they produce seeds, and they make more, right? So they can multiply. He makes the fish that we see, the animals that are all around. And then he speaks into existence the pinnacle. Humans made in his likeness, made in his image. And, and what I, I'm always in awe about this. It wasn't like he had some cauldron or some pot and he was building things with wood. He spoke. Spoke it. God is so powerful and so mighty that his words have authority to everything in the universe obeys that authority. That's who God is. And we would go on to start seeing that in Genesis 6, right? There's the flood that the world had gotten so evil, so wicked. There was so much rebellion against him that God shows his might, floods the entire world. 
And yet within that, he keeps his promise and saves a remnant for himself so he can fulfill the promise that he said that he would in Genesis. We see that with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, right? Another city that is wicked, that is evil, that is having the wrath of God poured out because they would not trust, submit, and listen to who he was. Later, we get to Exodus 7 through 11, and we get the account of God's people, the Israelites that are in Egypt, that are slaves to the Egyptians, that are being worked to death, worked to bone, that they're marginalized now, they're unloved, uncared for by those people. They cry out to God, and God shows up. And through that process, God would do these plagues that we would know about. He would turn the Nile River into blood. He sent frogs and gnats and flies. He killed livestock, boils, hail, locusts. He made it go completely dark. And then death to the firstborn son of every household in that area, except those that turn to God. Then we see as the Pharaoh finally releases the people that they go and they end up at a body of water that they can't cross. And now you've got Pharaoh coming in on them. What does God do? He parts the Red Sea so much that when he parts it, they are walking on dry land, that God saves his people, that he does this thing that no one can understand, that no one can explain. And then in Exodus 19, God wants to meet his people in this way. And he goes to Mount Sinai. Where we're going to start today is actually at this account in Exodus 19. 16 through 20 is what we're going to read. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. I mean, think about this moment. You're, you're seeing this God do all these miracles, do all these things, all these mighty works, all this power. It's like, hey, I want to meet you. you. Go to this mountain, and then all of a sudden you're at this mountain, and it's wrapped in smoke, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's fire pouring out of the sky and burning up the top of the mountain. And there's this trumpet and it's just blaring louder and louder and louder and as God speaks it's like thunder how, how are you going to react to that real casual like hey what's up <laughs> how you doing no that, that's not at all it actually tells us their response as they see this moment they have a response that I believe is the same response that we would have Exodus 20 <clears throat> 18 through 20 now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. 
this is the power of God. This is the might of God. This is the God that the Israels met and understood who he was and what he did. How do you think you would respond if you saw and met that God? It would be the same response. We don't have a category for that kind of power, that kind of might. And I would even ask the question, do you even see God this way? When you think of God, do you think of him this way? That this is the God that we worship, this is the God that loves us, this is the God that cares for us? Because if you don't, I would challenge you to, you're, you're giving a lesser God to worship when you don't think of him in this way. Because it makes his love stand out all the more, doesn't it? Now you might be thinking right now, Simon, this is the weirdest Advent message I have ever heard in my entire life. Where are the shepherds and why aren't we hugging and singing more happy songs? Well, we have to talk about this. If we're going to understand the passage that we're in and what Isaiah is going to say, we must understand the word might and what a mighty God looks like. If we go to our landing verse for this month, we're going to be in Isaiah 9. We're going to be in 6 and 7. We're going to read it again. We're going to read this every single week. This is, this is the landing spot. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me go ahead and pray and we'll get into this section. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this moment. I thank you that you are a mighty God, that we do not worship a weak God that you have all power in all things. Lord, I ask that we come before you this morning, that we would see you for who you truly are, that we would worship you fully, that we'd understand what we deserve in light of who you are, and yet your grace that was so poured out on us that we did not earn it and we did not deserve it. And Jesus, that we would see you for who you really are, that you are the mighty God. We pray these things in your glorious name. Amen. So we see today that the name that we're going to talk about is Mighty God, the one who would come and save the world, who we talked about last week, known as the Wonderful Counselor. If you, don't, if you didn't know that, you can go back and watch that one if you want. Um, but it's also Mighty God. Now, we kind of need to understand this phrase, this title, if we're going to understand exactly what Isaiah is trying to say in this moment. Now, God has many names, and uh, you'll see that as God is interacting with his people, he gives more and more names as they come to know him more and more, and he reveals that all throughout their interaction. So when I say the name of the Lord, what name do you, comes to mind right off the bat? Jesus. Okay, how about the name, the, the, the name of God? Yahweh, I heard it. Someone gets a gold star. Kudos to you. So Yahweh, or Lord, that is the specific personal name of God in the Bible. Here's the thing, that's not the word that's used in this particular verse. You're like, well, Simon, I think you're beating yourself up the wrong way. That You're not building a good case. We're going to get there. 
So the word that's used for God in this is El. E-L. That's the word that's used. We see it in other places. And God uh, refers to himself in the name El as well. Uh, in the next chapter, actually, in Isaiah 10, 20 through 21, it would say, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord. The Holy One of Israel is in truth. A remnant will return to the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. So it uses the Yahweh Lord in that verse, and then it also uses God, El, in that verse as well. Now, there's another name that maybe you've heard before when referring to God. It's Elohim. Maybe you've heard that term. Uh, That means God's. There's a plural there, right? So Elohim, um, it's, it's, a, it's a title that he uses for himself, but it, it's a category word that talks about all the spiritual realm and all the spiritual beings that exist in that place that we're not at. So seraphim and angels and even those that are in rebellion against him, Elohim is the word that's used there. Now, it also is the, the, the Jewish men and women would say he's the Elohim of Elohim. That is how they would refer to that. He is the God of gods. That's how they would talk about God. And you're like, I don't understand that title, Simon. Well, hold, hold on there a second. Um, it's very similar to the title mom or dad. So think about this. Um, is your mom's name mom? No, no, it's not. <laughs> my mom's name is Karen. It's not mom, but it's a name that I call my mom. Allegra, you'll be getting to talking to later. <laughs> See, and it's, it, it's a title, right? So we have a title, but it's also a name that we can use personally. So my mom knows when I say mom, I'm talking to her. That's the name that she understands. Yet if we say mom in a room with a bunch of moms, all their heads shoot up, don't they? What's wrong? What's wrong? What do I got to do? What do I got to do? That's how that works. It's very similar to that. Now, we see in Genesis 17 that God reveals himself to Abraham. And he says, here's a name that I have for you. What's the name? El Shaddai. God Almighty. See the word, see El in there? And then we see that um, God is going to show himself to Jacob in Genesis 28, uh, 10 through 22. This is the Jacob's ladder. The angel's going up and down and up and down, and they're going up to the throne room of God. And so he has this vision. He sees God, and then he wakes up, and then he names the place. What's he name it? Bethel, house of God. And then in Genesis 32, 22 through 32, we see that Jacob is going to wrestle with God. And he has this wrestling match. I think it's funny because I was a wrestler growing up. And, you know, to wrestle all through the night, that's insane. Because you go three minutes, you're like, I'm done. I, I, I'll give up. But they wrestle all through the night. He's trying to get a blessing. And then God's like, okay, I'm done with this. Let me just touch your side. And he's like, ah, my hip. He's like, I win. And so he wrestles with God. It is funny that you would wrestle with God all night. And you're like, well, I'll just touch it in this thing. Like, that's, I don't get it. Um, But Jacob's name gets changed, and he is called what? Israel wrestles with God. And so what we see is that the writer knows what he's saying. Those who would say, well, Jesus isn't God. No, he is God. He refers to himself in this way, and Isaiah says that he will be mighty God. El. So this name of God 
the same God we spoke about earlier with all of his might and all of his power and all the things that he's done will be the savior of the world. Now, least we forget, the mighty God will be a baby, a child born to us, a son given. Meaning that this, all of the might and the power of God was poured in to a tiny, little, defenseless baby. That'd be hard to understand, isn't it? Because I think about the might of God, and like he is all-powerful, and no one can defeat him, and I'm just going to go on a limb here. If challenged by any baby, I could beat any baby up. I'm going to win. I don't care how big or small they are. I'm going to destroy that baby. And so you think, why is all of this might and all this power poured in this baby? They don't have a, it doesn't make sense. And you might be asking, how does he do that and why does he do that? So the how, let me just be honest, it's really hard to understand. The how is hard to understand. We see that the might of God has no limits. Actually, the idea of El Shaddai, Almighty God, means that he can do anything that he wants within his character and his nature. So this thing that he is doing, he can do it because he is El Shaddai. That is why God is able to do that. He can fill this baby with who he is. Now, the why, I think we can get our minds around a little bit more. I think we can understand the why part if we break it down. Um, the better idea would help us to understand the priesthood that was given to the Israelites during that time. The priesthood was those who were kind of the middlemen that represented God and represented man and would bring the offerings to God so sins could be forgiven. Um, here's the problem. Those priests were sinful. Those, those priests were tainted by sin, weren't they? And so for them to even represent God, they had to go through all of these ceremonies and these washings and they had to do sacrifices and put blood on this earlobe and put blood on this toe and put blood here. They had to do all this stuff just to go once a year to take the sins of the people before God. It was a lot of work because they couldn't represent God because they weren't God. And, and here's, here's what I'm trying to get at. To represent God, there's only one that can. Who is it? It's got to be God, right? God can only represent God. And who can represent man? Man. So you have to understand that you have to have one that is man and that is God to represent appropriately to have the relationship that we're desiring. So what we see is that this perfect representation would be categorized in the person, in the man, in the child, Jesus. In 1 John 1 John 2, 1, it says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a, what's the word there? Advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the idea is this, it's a legal term, it's a legal understanding. Um, you ever watch those court trials like, I'm going to represent myself, your honor. And you're like, you're going to jail for forever now. You are not getting off the hook. Why? Because the bulk of us don't understand the law and we can't represent ourselves appropriately, can we? We go to a person who has studied law, who, is, who understands it, who's passed the bar exam, and can go before a judge and plead our case before them. Right? That's who Jesus is. 
He understands God perfectly. He understands man perfectly. Therefore, he can represent us and go to the Father, whereas we couldn't. That's why he had to be God and be man. That's why it's so important for us to understand that. He, Jesus understands what it means to be human. And I, and I think that we can forget that too, too quickly, or we can only think about that alone. And, and, and the reality is this, he understands us. To know that we have a Savior that completely understands every aspect of what it means to be human. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. He had to get potty trained. You're like, I don't want to think about Jesus that way. He did. He got sick, and I, and I believe he got sick because God has designed our immune systems to learn how to make antibodies, and he would need that as well. I would imagine if he was a carpenter working with stones, that he hit his hand with some kind of hammer at some point, and yet still didn't swear. I'm like, it's a miracle. How can he not swear? <laughs> but that's who he was. But he also understood death and life and loss and hurt and suffering. He understands what you're going through. That's the kind of Savior that I want to worship. That's the kind of Savior that I want to go to. He's not turning a blind eye to our hurts and pains. If you look at the life of Jesus as a baby growing up, it seems like this might isn't what we read about at all earlier. I think a lot of us, when we think about Jesus, we have these very weird cultural views in our mind. Jesus was this really nice, fancy lad, and he had really great hair, and he hugged a lot of kids, and he hugged a lot of people, he hung out with the ladies, he's very effeminate, he probably drove a, a convertible cabriolet, that's probably what he did, and so he was this guy that seems soft, and he seems weak, and he doesn't seem mean at all, you are like, he just never gets mad, that Jesus is so great. That's not at all accurate. And we're going to get there in a second. But what I want to talk about is the idea is that when he came the first time, he came as the suffering servant. Matthew would say this. <clears throat> Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the one guy who should be worshipped, the one guy that should be honored and praised, and that should be lifted high, he's like, no, I'm not coming to be served. I'm coming to serve. There's something that i got to take care of. It's a sin issue. It's a sin problem. It's the brokenness between God and humans, and I'm going to fix that. I'm going to take care of that problem. And I'm going to serve in a way that you can't even imagine. And the might of God is going to play out in a way that no one would have understood. See, all of Israel would have thought, this, this guy is going to show up. It's going to be like Mount Sinai and smoke and fire. And he's going to lay it down. And then this Jesus guy shows up. Yet he still is going to show the might of God. He's going to show the might of God through love. His love for his people. This child born to us is going to lay down his life. He's going to serve the Father willingly, knowing that the only way that sins could be forgiven is through a sacrifice that was sufficient for all the world, past, present, and future. I know I quote certain verses all the time. I just do. 
But when you're talking about certain things, you've got to quote the right verses. And Romans 1.16 is one that I quote all the time. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. The power of God, the might of God is the gospel. That is the power of God on best display for us to see. Meaning that God came to earth to live the life that we couldn't live, to die in our place, and to give us righteousness so we could be with him without compromising any part of who he was. He didn't brush sin aside. He didn't say, ah, it's okay. You're a good enough guy. Don't worry about it. No, there had to be a penalty. It had to be taken care of. That was poured out on Jesus. What we deserved, he took. He bore the weight of the wrath of God. And then he extends his grace. Think about this. Instead of extending his wrath, which he is rightfully able to do, he extends grace and love. That's what this baby is going to do. If you think about what Jesus did, I think that it's, it's summarized very well in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It talks about who he is and what he did. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is... Before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, talking about the resurrection, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you understand he is the image of the invisible God. That God was so pleased that he would fill him completely, fully, not sort of, not some, not a little, fully fill him. That his firstborn from the dead is so important to us. I think that we forget about this sometimes. Like, um, if Jesus came and died and then didn't rise again, then that means that if our life is hidden in his, that means that we're what? Dead. We're in trouble. That's, that's not good. So the fact that he rose again, the firstborn of the dead, means that if our life is in his and his life is us, it means that we have the hope, that we have the promise for eternal life. This isn't the end for those in Christ. It will be with him forever. We're eternal. We've been designed to be eternal beings. And he has bridged that and he has saved that for us. And then it says that he has reconciled all things to himself. That he makes peace with man and God by the blood of his cross, his sacrifice. And because he lives, we live. The other thing that we talk about all the time is that Jesus is coming a second time. The second coming of Christ. We call this the second advent. It's this way that we get to relate in some way to the first advent. To the Israelites as they waited and they waited and they waited. Anticipated for the Savior to come. We are waiting and waiting and waiting and anticipating our Savior to return. But I want, I want us to understand something. He's not... He's not coming back as that suffering servant again. 
He was on the cross and he said this thing. It is finished. What's finished? The sacrifice is finished. The wrath has been satisfied. That he has justified those that call on his name. That he is no longer going to come to serve because he is now going to be served. And as the Bible talks about who he is, those that belong to him have nothing to fear. Who belongs to him? Those that have placed their life in the life of Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. That is who belongs to him. Those who call him Lord of their lives. And I think that this is where I just, I wonder with people sometimes. They say, well, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I'll just say, well, is he the Lord of your life? Like, well, yeah. Do you know what that means? That means you're not in charge anymore. You're no longer the Lord. You're no longer the King. We saw what that earned us, Right? So we forfeit our desires, our hopes, our dreams, our wants because his are better. Do we see that? Do we understand that when we talk about Jesus? See, at the, the second coming of Jesus, he, he's, going to, he's going to look different. And so I just want to read a nice little warm passage from Revelation 19. <laughs> And we're just going to talk about Jesus and what he's going to look like when he comes back for the second advent, what we anticipate. Then I saw the heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following on him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus. He is coming back, and he is going to end sin, end death. He will come to those and those that have chosen to rebel against him and to, just, to embrace sin, embrace rejecting him. He will deal with them. I mean, this is not a, a happy verse that you usually read for, for Christmas. But we have to understand that there's a reality of what Jesus did and what's going to happen when he comes back. Why do you think we preach with such urgency to go and take the message of Jesus Christ to all? Because they are lost and they need help and they need the truth of God. That there's a God that came, that died on the cross so they wouldn't have to. That they poured out his wrath on Jesus. He absorbed it so they wouldn't have to. That took our place so they could be with him for forever. And we all had to experience that at some point in our lives if we call ourselves a believer and a Christian. There's this great love that we just forget about. I always say, if you don't know the bad news, you'll never understand the good news. The bad news is that God's wrath is coming. But if you've placed it in Christ Jesus, it's been taken care of. 
You have been saved once and for all. No one can snatch you from his hand. No one can take you from him. Every one of us sits in that great love. See, we understand that the world is hurting. We understand that the world is broken. We understand that the world is constantly grasping for what will bring them joy and hope and peace and contentment. And God is saying there is only one and his name is Jesus. If you look anywhere else, it will fail you. See, we have the great honor, the great privilege, the command of God to take his name to the nations. That's who we are. And God gives us this might that we can live this out. In Ephesians, <clears throat> in Ephesians 6, 10 through 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and put on the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Where's our strength come from? It comes from God. Whose armor is it? It's God's armor. His might, His power. The only offensive weapon that we have is what? The sword of the have his word that we can bring his truth right we can bring the truth of god and i love that god says hey the schemes of the devil are to crush you and to destroy you and to keep you from glorifying god in all ways but i have given you my might i've given you my strength that you can go out and you can proclaim that the same spirit that filled jesus the same spirit that we get to be filled with and we can be bold and courageous to take the word of god out Trusting that he is going to save everyone that he has decided he is going to save. He is drawing all people to him, and he will not come back until he has saved all of his people. And he has the love that he is offering to the world. This, this is what it means when it says, Mighty God in Isaiah. This child that would come as a suffering servant will become the warrior king to do the work of the Father. See, the God of Sinai is the God of the manger. Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. That God came to rescue his people. Uh, if you have a, a daughter, she says, I'm waiting for my, my prince on the white horse to show up and save me. That's a good thing. I got a verse. He did come and he did save. He is the only one that will save. As we come today to worship him, we must understand how mighty and powerful he is. We must also stand the great love, the might of the love of the gospel that he has poured out so we could even, can even look towards him. Do you see Jesus this way? Are you trite with Jesus? Are you nonchalant with Jesus? Yes, he is our savior. Yes, he is our friend. But he is the mighty God. And as we come to Christmas, think about all that was done to have this child born put in a dirty trough. Let's pray.